Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Dr. St. John, good to have you with us. How are you, sir? I'm quite well, Roy. Thanks very much for the invitation. Yeah, it's always good to speak with you because I, I tweeted out earlier, you answer questions, you don't talk around the questions that we ask. And this is what we need. We need answers to questions, not, well, maybe, or let me just give you the politically correct response. Let me start with this, because this is what I'm asked time and again. We hear daily infection rates over and over and over. And I have had infectious diseases experts or specialists on this program say, that's not the way we should be doing it. That's not the information lead that we should have. What do you say? Well, there's lots of information we'd like to have, we need, and and we'd like to have. Uh, some of it we do have, some of it we don't. Uh, there is still some uncertainty, especially how uh, uh, the Omicron strain is going to behave in our population, as as opposed to how it behaved in the South African population, and they're quite different. Um, but you know, in terms of of uh, following. Uh, what's happening and uh, trying to make some predictions about what might happen. Counting cases is uh, is a classic epidemiological tool, uh, and it is very useful. It's always very useful in the past. Uh, in the past, it's always been useful. So, yeah, we do count cases. Um, there, we always have a problem of uh, are we counting? Are we undercounting cases? Um, in the case of of uh, COVID, yes, because we don't count asymptomatic cases because they don't appear uh, in our healthcare system. So, yeah, there are some caveats and difficulties, but it is a standard tool that we use all the time. Yeah. So the question uh, has been that I've been asked, and I can't answer it because I'm not an epidemiologist or a doctor. I'm, I'm a generalist. I have a PhD in generalism, <laughs> which means I know a lot about a little or a little about a lot, one or the other. But, uh, Dr. St. John, what's happening right now within the public health agencies that we're most familiar with, the World Health Organization, the Public Health Agency of Canada, and the Centers for Disease Control? You were a senior official with all three. What's going on as far as Omicron is concerned within those agencies? Well, let me start with the World Health Organization, because their, their task, uh, because they have 192 member, member states, their task is to have the world view, the global view. Um, and so they depend on the member states to tell them what's going on locally in those countries, and then they compile what's going on globally. So you can get estimates of how many cases are infected around the world and so forth. But again, that's, those are subject to many caveats of how, how correct, uh, how complete the reporting is from different countries with different um, systems for different surveillance systems, but they uh, they also have um, they also can call on worldwide experts, uh, and they they form expert groups and committees to come and and look at a situation and provide guidance to uh, to the countries. Uh, as an example, the WHO provides a list of what they feel are acceptable vaccines under emergency conditions. And that's very helpful for countries that do not have regulatory bodies like ours in Canada or the FDA in the United States. So they depend on WHO's advice. That's the world, world view. Um, in, uh, in a place like CDC, their focus is dual, but mostly domestic. Uh, they are tracking uh, what's happening in the different states. And they are trying to get a handle on how severe this might be in different conditions. Uh, and whether this is a threat to, whether this Omicron is, is going to be a big threat to our healthcare systems, hospitals, et cetera. Um, likewise, uh, the same thing is happening with the public health service in England and so on. Um, CDC, however, does have a capacity to look globally uh, and to provide Americans with advice on, for example, traveling to different countries and telling them when to go or not go and, and so forth. CDC also uh, because they have a strong quarantine act and uh, and do have control about over cruise ships that dock in the United States, as many do, CDC can lay down rules for cruise ships, uh, which is quite impressive, actually. Mm -hmm. So when, when you look at what's happening with Omicron and uh, you see the news and you, you know the numbers that we're told anyway, yeah. 
Based on, on all of your experience in public health, and I just want to remind people that uh, you were the national, lead in this, the national lead in this country for Canada's response to SARS. When you look at the information that we've received that we know about Omicron, how concerned are you about this particular variant? How worried are you about its potential severity? I just want to share with you that uh, I've been in touch with uh, uh, a doctor in South Africa, trying to get him on the air. He's very busy, but he, he can't join us this weekend. But he has written that he, he thinks it's possible, isn't saying this is what's going to happen, uh, but it's possible, he thinks, that Omicron could be what the final and third wave of the so-called Spanish flu was in 1918. It could be the weaker variety, the weakest yet, could be, and uh, it may spell somewhat close to the end of at least the first phase of dealing with, uh, with COVID until it becomes endemic. Long question. I'm sorry, but I had to phrase it that way. Sure. Um, well, in terms of this particular strain, uh, and let me let me say, it's a lot different from 2003. Uh, and the big one of the biggest differences is uh, is how highly infectious the current Omicron strain is. I mean, highly infectious. Um, and so the it's very disconcerting and worrisome from two points of view. Number one. Um, People, people might say, uh, or we might find out, or we might confirm, that it's a relatively mild disease for most people. But there may be large numbers of people who become infected because it's so infectious. And if only a small percentage end up in the hospital, that's still a lot of people ending up in the hospital, uh, even though it's a mild disease, uh, just on a percentage basis. Uh, so... We may, uh, we may, we have some concern that this this virus may uh, indeed overload our healthcare system um, once again. Um, and n- number two, um, if a large number of people are going to get sick with this virus, even mildly so, they're going to be encouraged to stay home and isolate themselves so they don't keep spreading it. And uh, if we end up with large numbers of people at home sick in a relatively short period of time, you have to ask, what does that do to the, all the services that we depend on, like uh, the truck drivers that deliver food to the grocery store, the bus drivers, nurses who might have to be um, at home because they have COVID uh, Omicron. In other words, it has, could have a secondary impact on our society much greater yeah. than, than Delta did. Dr. St. John, what we hear about Omicron repeatedly is that it's going to affect the vast majority of people, perhaps everyone. So when I hear that, and I'm not against uh, taking precautionary measures, but when we hear that, and then we hear about societal restrictions in place, restaurants, bars, because you mentioned the economy, and it's a very important issue, restaurants, bars, sporting events, anywhere where people gather. If it's going to affect everyone, how significantly contributive to controlling the situation are restrictions? It's not, well, when you say it's going to affect everyone, not exactly. I mean, first of all, anybody who's unvaccinated is obviously uh, going to be uh, at high risk for obtaining this, for, for getting this virus. Yeah. We know uh, there's a trickling of information that says that some percentage of of vaccinated people may also become infected, or even if they've had the disease once before, they may get it again. That's going to be mostly elderly people and people who have uh, a poor response to the vaccine, uh, and they don't have high degree of immunity. Uh, But uh, the rest of us are going to stay fairly healthy. we might have the, a mild version of it, but uh, uh, we the vaccine does seem to be protecting us from serious hospitalizations and death. But you know, you you, you can't stand and this and I've mentioned the impact on society. But you you the argument of well, let's just drop everything and let the virus run haywire uh, is not going to be particularly useful, or it's going to be quite harmful actually. So the public health measures and the vaccinations and the booster shots and all the tools that we have are really intended now to 
try to blunt this the, the the curve, try to blunt the spread of the virus as much as possible. Yeah, no, I understand that, and I've been vaccinated, and I'm in favor of vaccination. But I'm just wondering when I hear that it's going to affect almost everybody. When we see, if we step back from the vaccines for a moment, and we talk about the you know the restrictions in societal behavior, if it's going to affect everyone, I just wonder how much the restrictions are in fact going to be going to be impactful on the spread of Omicron, if it's already going to in- impact everyone? Well, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I mean, n- no infectious disease ever infects everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people have enough immunity to where they won't get infected. Um, so uh, if we, what we're trying to do is still, we're trying to protect our healthcare system uh, from overload. Uh, and so we want to try to use public health measures and vaccination to target the high-risk groups uh, try to keep them as healthy as possible. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, it may be very widespread, but uh, it won't happen all at once. I mean, every day. Uh, I mean, all in one day. So we're trying to find a balance, I think, between uh, trying to minimize the spread as much as we possibly can, uh, protect our health care system, try to protect our economy as much as we possibly can. Um, Meanwhile, this virus is going to be widespread. I agree. So the view was, and you and I talked about this off the air, uh, the view was, um, or we seem to be assured, that being vaccinated twice in 2021, life would be okay. We would return to life pre-COVID. Here we are in December of 21, coming to the end of the year. Among many people, there's a sense of disappointment, maybe an amount of loss of faith. And uh, because, you know, double vaccinated, what's, what's the vaccination solution oversold? Well, I think there's, it's an, there's a bit of an unfortunate uh, oversell, I think, of uh, a vaccine uh, for this particular virus. Um, I mean, the vaccine is new. Uh, we didn't know how long it would work over time. Um, and uh, I don't think people understand exactly that there's, you know, you give somebody a, a vaccination, almost for any disease, you have four possible outcomes. Uh, maybe the person doesn't react to the vaccine at all. Uh, and we know that there's a percentage of people that do not react to the COVID vaccines. Small percentage, small percentage, but they don't have, as a result, they've got the shot, but they don't have a reaction, they don't have immunity. Then there are people that get uh, a mild, a, a, a very weak reaction. Uh, for a whole variety of reasons. They might be very elderly, uh, frail, have com- uh, uh, other conditions, etc. So they have a very mi- very weak reaction, and they're not very well protected. Then there are people that, of course, have a middle-of-the-road reaction, and they're okay, pretty good, mm-hmm. and people who have a very strong reaction, and they're really quite well protected. You get your shot, you don't know which one, which one of those four groups you're in. Um, so... It behooves us all, given that this virus now shows that it can evade the immunity to some extent, it behooves us all to be very careful, even though we're vaccinated. And I think people have to understand that vaccines are not magic bullets. Yeah. No, they never have been. Um, Where, in the minute we have left, where are we, do you think, on this road of dealing with, living with, COVID and its and its variants. Where are we? Or if it's a nine-inning baseball game, what inning are we in? We're early in this in this particular ball game. It's like the next ball game. Um, the uh, we're in the we're early. I mean, the, I was looking at Ontario data today, and while the cases have been, the new cases per day have been going up uh, gradually over the last couple of weeks. Um, all of a sudden, they're going straight up. I mean, I haven't seen a curve like that that I can remember in a long time, yeah. where the curves are going straight up, which means extensive transmission, rapid extensive transmission. Okay. So early innings, and um, the virus is up to bat, and and it's batting really well, uh, unfortunately, at this time. And we have to do the best we can yes, sir. to try to curb it. The Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux, is back with us. Mr. Giroux, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And you? I'm just, I'm just doing great. Uh, people, as soon as I said you were going to be in the, on the air with us, it all started immediately. The email started, so who's going to bite the beer? I, I'm trying to forget that, but... Uh... <laughs> 
Well, it seems we're a long way away from uh, buying beer and having a face-to-face conversation. Yeah. But hopefully, maybe in the spring. Yeah, maybe in the spring. Early summer. So here we are. Once again, we're being overtaken by a, by a um, the COVID variant, Omicron. And you told us last year that the federal government could afford to spend as much as it did on pandemic support payments to individuals and base, uh, businesses, but only once, only for one year. Now we have the finance minister preparing to spend significantly again, and we have this Omicron variant to deal with. And who knows uh, what that may uh, entail as far as support for Canadians is concerned, financial support. Where's the ceiling, Monsieur Giroux, on federal government support spending now? Or has it been reached and maybe exceeded? It's a very good question. It's a moving target, in fact. It's a bit like the virus itself. There's no clear and definitive answer to that because you have countries that have much higher level of debt than us. Take Japan, for example. And nobody is worried about Japan's capacity to service that debt. Uh, financial markets certainly are not. But you have countries like Greece who have much lower, had much lower levels of debt than Japan and financial markets panicked, or Portugal or Spain, where there was uh, significant concerns from financial markets. So it's, a, it's not an easy answer to, to provide, in part because it's all relative. So if everybody is increasing its level of debt, what are financial markets to do? Punish everybody at the same time? Possibly. But then who would they lend their money to? So that's a difficult question. And in that sense, We're not significantly standing out compared to other countries. If you look at the U.S., for example, they have been spending uh, at a very rapid pace, and they've increased their level of debt, and they started from a a worse position than we did. So that's why in Canada it's not worrying yet. But the concern that exists is that if governments continue to spend when it's not absolutely necessary, there's a risk that it will fuel inflation. So we are seeing that, and it's in part due to other phenomena, but also in part due to um, in government intervention. So if the government was to continue to intervene at the massive rate we saw last year, that would be problematic. Mm-hmm. What are your concerns? You mentioned inflation, and that is something we, of course, uh, all are keeping a very close eye on, and it's affecting uh, Canadians. My, my line has been... Pardon me. My line has been uh, inflation is what you encounter if you're stopping for gas on the way to the grocery store and you can't afford to fill up at either place. So how concerned are you and how does inflation impact on your um, work and and your directive? And that is keeping the parliamentary budget in order. How how much does it complicate your life? It doesn't complicate my life a lot. It's one variable that we have to take into consideration, which we always did. But previously, prior to the pandemic, it was easy. Inflation was expected to be between one and a half and 2.2% year in, year out. Uh, now, wow, it's moved upwards of 3% and upwards of 4%, and it's nearing 5% now. So it's one variable that's changed, but it's not making my, my job more difficult. It could be making, it is making life more difficult for Canadians, that's for sure, when the price of things go up. But with respect to my job, it's not that more, much more difficult. And in fact, for government, it's making the government's life easier. If you think about inflation for a government perspective, if the price of everything goes up, then the tax revenues they collect goes up as well. If you think of the GST, for example, yeah. and the, the real value of their debt goes down because uh, if inflation is higher than expected, they are financing their debt at still very low levels. That doesn't take into consideration inflation of 4 and 4.7%, for example. So the real interest rate on a 10-year government bond is negative because the government is financing that at, let's say, percent or less. Inflation is much more than that. So the real burden of the debt uh, decreases when there's strong inflation, which was the opposite problem in Japan. They had deflation for several, several years. So even a stable debt uh, increased in real terms because of deflation. The fiscal update, uh, and then it's morphing into uh, a federal budget to come. We went more than two years without a federal budget in this country, and I know that concerned you. We talked about that. 
So mm-hmm. when you look at the fiscal update, what was your response to that? What's your reaction to what the finance minister delivered? Well, my response to that uh, will come in, like formally. We'll have a report on that. Uh, but my immediate response, reaction rather, was that it's it's a nice nice piece to put to put out uh, two weeks before Christmas or slightly less than two weeks before Christmas or the holidays. Uh, but it paints a rather incomplete picture, and that is on one side to be expected. For example, it does not include the campaign promises that the Liberals made, and they made for over $53 billion promises net. So if you include on the one side the expenditures, the additional expenditures, and you subtract the tax increases they had in their platform, on a net basis, it's $43 billion over a number of years. So when people look at the update and they say, wow, it's looking good, we're going towards a $13 billion deficit in 2026-27. Things are improving significantly, so we could be close to balanced budget in five years' time. So things are really going looking good, but that does not include any of the campaign commitments. So when the, the government tables its budget in the spring, you can expect these numbers to be significantly different because that's where the government, hopefully, or, or not, depending on your point of view, will announce its plan for the foreseeable future and will start to implement its uh, campaign commitments. So that was a, a big a big disappointment, so to speak, to see that people are looking at this picture as of now, not taking into consideration what the, the Liberals have promised to do once they would be reelected. Yeah. There's a difference between a political document and a political province, uh, promise, of course, or an expectation. Now, uh-huh. th- there was Bill C-2, an act to an act to provide further support in response to COVID-19. And last week, this past week, the finance minister um, argued that the cost would be $7.4 billion. I spoke with uh, our previous guest about this earlier today, Tom Korski from uh, Black Locks Reporter. And then just minutes after the um, after the parliament adjourned for Christmas, the finance minister revealed that, oh, the costs are going to be 61% higher to a total of $11.9 billion. So we go from $7.4 billion disclosed to minutes after parliament adjourns for Christmas to $11.9 billion. That's $4.5 billion. And it gets me wondering, and I have Mr. Korsky wondering, whether $5 billion, which used to be a lot of money, was a massive amount of money for the Canadian government. It, was, it would be half of our deficit in a bad year. It doesn't seem to, to matter that much. Do you have concerns about just about the, the numbers of billions? Or It seems casually billions are spent upon billions upon billions. Totally. And one of my, my staff, staff members yesterday said, it seems these days the government doesn't even get out of bed for a billion. Uh, and that struck me as probably accurate. Nobody seems to bother when it's less than a billion. So we are collectively looking at numbers casually. If it's not at least a billion, it's virtually nothing. And it is a lot of money. So you're referring to $5 billion. Well, the government asked parliamentarians to approve over $20 billion of spending in just a few weeks in the very short fall session without providing them the number, the deficit number for the year that finished at the end of March 2021, so this year. So eight and a half months after the end of the fiscal year, the government finally decided to tell parliamentarians how much the deficit amounted to last year, but in the meantime had tabled documents, bills, seeking authority to spend almost $20 billion. So it seems they don't really care about informing parliamentarians before they ask them to, to vote and to vote on spending. And look at the sequence of events. So the Auditor General signed off on the public accounts, so the document in question for the deficit figure, on September 9th. She had to reopen the books because the government wanted to uh, or, uh, add a liability for First Nations children. And finally, the minister responsible for Treasury Board, Madame Fortier, she signed off on the final document at the end of November. And it still took over two weeks for that document to be revealed public. In the meantime, parliamentarians were asked to vote quickly 
on these $20 billion of expenditure without knowing what was the deficit for the year prior. So transparency seems to be one of the casualties of COVID-19 these days. Yeah, we've become desensitized, I think, to what a billion dollars or $5 billion really represents. It's more than a political tool. Uh, well, I can't, tell, I can't tell you I'm not desensitized, but uh, uh, I'm like everybody else looking, at, uh, looking around and there doesn't seem to be as much concern as there would have been two years ago with the same type of uh, lack of transparency to be polite. How surprised are you with this? Very surprised. Very, very, very surprised. Like my father-in-law calls my wife sometimes and he asks my wife, so, so has, uh, have you picked up Giroud from the floor yet? Is he still depressed? And yeah, I, it is depressing to see the state of accountability and transparency. It still surprises me 21 months after the start of COVID. Yeah. And I hope things will get better. I, I thought things would get better after the election, uh, and I'm hopeful that things will get better as uh, the spring arrives. Okay. I'm, I'm optimistic still, and that's with strong, independent institutions. I can only imagine what happens in countries with weaker institutions. Mr. Giroux, when it comes to the issue of federal program spending on housing affordability, you reported on that. What is, what's, the, what's the takeaway? What's the, the absolute takeaway on this? Well, the absolute takeaway is that it seems to rely a lot on provinces and territories to carry the burden of housing affordability. So it's a report that we tabled several months ago that looked at how much the government was spending on housing affordability and what it was doing to the number of units being either maintained or created. So we looked at both, and we found that despite the government's uh, claims, it was not building as many as many units as it was claiming to do and not also not as many that were maintained that were affordable and the definition of affordability was uh, very elastic and not many people would agree with that definition so it was defined if i'm not mistaken as below the median uh, for the area in which the units were built but the median can be very high in cities like Toronto or Hamilton or Vancouver, for example. So if it's below the media, median, it doesn't mean that it is affordable. It's less expensive than what people are. You need to call him back. Clearly, we lost uh, the parliamentary budget officer. So is our telephone died again? I don't know. It's either you or I didn't drop a quarter in the machine. Uh, maybe it's me. Maybe the government doesn't like what I'm saying and they tried to cut me off. Well, they were successful. So, so stop it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. No, I won't. No, I know you won't. I'm glad you won't. The need for Ottawa to spend more on First Nations water tre- treatment systems. You've spoken about that. And what we looked at was whether the spending that's already being promised and in the pipeline, whether that would be sufficient to reduce the number of First Nations water systems that are at high risk or medium risk of, um, of, of not providing clean water. And we found that the government is providing enough money, provisioning enough money for the infrastructure. Whether it goes to the right First Nations, that's another issue, but at least it has enough in the pipeline. Where there is um, loss, less money is when it comes to operations and maintenance. There's a, there's a gap of, of about half of what would be needed. So there's, uh, the government is providing less money, and there's a gap of about 100, $140 million per year for the operations and maintenance. So overall, there's enough money, but it's not allocated in the right bucket. It's keen on building or, or, or yeah, building the systems, but it's less keen on their day-to-day, year-over-year operations and maintenance, which is uh, obviously critical for the provision of clean water to First Nations. And we've looked at 550 First Nation reserves, so it's data provided by the government itself. So we think it's rather reliable. We have 30 seconds. Can you, in 30 seconds, tell us what the takeaway, what, what's your greatest concern from 2021? My greatest concern is that there seems to be a desensitization about what the government is doing, a disinterest or just a sense of we've had enough with all this. And that's worrying me because it gives a free pass to politicians and to the government 
to do what they want as opposed to what Canadians need. For example, providing providing clean and accurate information to parliamentarians before asking them to vote. That's something that has um, been become less important, it seems, with the pandemic. Uh, providing accurate information to Canadians when it comes to big procurement projects. Mm-hmm. I reported on the cost of uh, DND, National Defense Ship, right. uh, and these the costs go up. I reported recently on the cost of polar icebreakers. The cost has gone up significantly. Okay. So I'm concerned about that, that uh, laissez-faire, so to speak. Now, on this issue of Bill 21 in Quebec, after the reassigning from the classroom of Muslim teacher Fatima Anvari in Chelsea, Quebec, for wearing a hijab into the classroom, thereby, here's Quebec's position, violating the province's secularism Bill 21, federal, provincial, and municipal politicians across the rest of Canada have challenged the Quebec legislation as divisive and in violation of charter rights. The Prime Minister, while disagreeing with Bill 21, says he won't involve the federal government at this juncture. Well, the headline about Mr. O'Toole, who I'd like to talk to about this and other issues, but Mr. O'Toole has no interest, it appears, to reappear on this program. You just can't be critical. If you're critical, they cut you off, like children. But on the issue of uh, Bill 21... Uh, Brampton, Ontario Mayor Patrick Brown sent an open letter to municipal politicians in 100 municipalities across this country, inviting them to challenge Bill 21. And the mayor joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. How are you, Mayor? Roy, I'm doing good. It's been a while. Uh, Great to be back on your show. Yeah, it's been a while, and uh, we're certainly going to invite you back because you said yes. I don't know what goes on in the political dynamics sometimes, but boy, the, the skin is thin. Okay, fair enough. No comment. Uh, Mayor, there was opportunity during the federal election to challenge Bill 21 very directly, and the political parties really didn't do that. Even now, the federal government won't take action. So would you please speak to what Bill 21 represents to you, knowing the logo government says Bill 21 protects Quebec's culture and has wide support in the province? For me, Bill 21 represents discrimination. It represents an infringement of religious freedom. It sets a dangerous precedent. And frankly, I think during the federal election, the last two federal elections, we saw the political leadership in Canada from all parties trade foundational principles for votes in Quebec. And that's and that's wrong. This is a blatant infringement of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And it's going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. What I want to make sure is that it's a level playing field at the Supreme Court. So what are you calling on the municipal leaders across this country to whom you sent your open letter to do? What do you want them to do? I want them to step up and help fund this challenge of Bill 21. I think it's the responsibility of the government of Canada, but they have failed um, to, to do so. They've all said they are deeply opposed to this bill, but when it comes to backing the challenge, they've, done, they've been absent. And I think Canada's big diverse cities can step up and show, our, and show our support by making a, a contribution and saying that we stand for religious freedom. The groups that are challenging Bill 21, the National Council of Canadian Muslims, the World Sikh uh, Organization, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, they've raised about $1.1 million, largely on the backs of $10 and $20 donations from racialized communities. But it's going to cost about $3 million to take it to the Supreme Court. Uh, they felt that with the government of Quebec, with unlimited legal resources, that it wasn't a level playing field, that they didn't have the legal resources to, to fight this with the same ability as the government of Quebec. And, and just imagine, Roy, if there was a Supreme Court president, precedent that said a government is allowed legally to discriminate based on faith. Imagine there was a precedent that would be applicable across Canada to that effect, simply because we didn't have the resources to properly fight this bill. And, you know, it's been really heartening to see across the country mayors from Vancouver to Hamilton, um, Toronto, Winnipeg, the, the list goes on, all stepping up saying that, that we value religious freedom, that we're going to protect it, we're going to fight this bill because it's wrong. So clearly you're hearing from the mayors you addressed their support. 
Yes. Absolutely. Yep. It's a, probably 30 to 40 cities have reached out saying they're going to contribute as well. I think we're going to raise the $1.9 million, million that we needed to, to fight this to the Supreme Court, and uh, I think this is a beautiful gesture of support for religious freedom across the country. So there's already a court challenge for Bill 21. Even if it goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rules against Bill 21, Quebec probably or most likely would enact the notwithstanding clause. They've done it before of the Constitution to overrule the court, then what? Or are we, so, we're not there yet? We're not there yet, and, and that's a hypothetical. But what a bigger worry would be is that because of a lack of resources, they actually win at the Supreme Court. Everyone knows that resources in, in lawsuits makes a difference. And imagine them getting a precedent that would be applicable across the country that allows legal discrimination based on faith. It's so, unthinkable. Yeah. So, so if Quebec says, and they will, that it's rest of Canada interference, that this is a secularism bill that protects uh, Quebec society. If, if, you, if that argument's made to you, what, what would you say to somebody from Quebec who made that argument to you? Well, I'd say, how does it protect the French language to tell a French-speaking man of Sikh faith that he can't be a schoolteacher, or tell a woman uh, of Muslim faith that, who, who, who wears a niqab and speaks French, that she can't be a police officer. This is discrimination against faith. It has nothing to do with protecting the French language. This this targets people based on their faith, not on their language. Yeah. Uh, there is a view, and it's probably going to be expressed by uh, my next guest, who's an old friend of mine, a radio talk show host in uh, Montreal, has been, and is a member of the Parti Québécois, that the school board put this teacher into an untenable position because the legislation was in place. What do you say to that? The, the notion that they're trying to say that she shouldn't have been hired in the first place is, is even worse. Um, mm-hmm. People, regardless of their faith, should have the same opportunities in, in Canada. And I, I think that's a, a foundational principle, that regardless of your, your, your faith, that you have the same opportunity. There are faiths where articles of your faith are part of your faith, and that um, you're essentially putting people in a position where they have to choose between employment and their faith, and that's wrong. Yeah, do you think you'll be able to persuade the federal political parties to actually get behind what you're doing and actually actively and and, uh, directly support? They're on the wrong side of history, and uh, I believe that one day we're going to have a prime minister rise in the House of Commons and make an official apology to everyone that lost their jobs because of this discrimination. Racism is expensive, and I believe there'll be a compensation one day and an apology from a prime minister saying that uh, they are sorry that this happened uh, in Canada. Um, The federal political parties will adapt one day. They're on the wrong side of history, and they're making a calculation based on, on votes in Quebec, not on what is right. Nino Colavecchio joins me, my good friend, marketing lecturer at LaSalle College in Montreal, member of the Parti Québécois. He's a former PQ candidate and Montreal radio talk show host. That's how I met him when I heard him on the air one day. I was sitting two feet from the studio, and I heard this guy going on about why Quebec would be better outside Canada. So I ambushed him when he came out of the studio, and we quickly became friends. (laughs) How are you? I'm very well. Always a pleasure to speak to you and get a chance to have a chat with your listeners as well because well, uh, I, I've been I've been sort of like foaming at the mouth listening to that previous interview. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so let's talk. Let's talk then about <laughs> what Bill 21 is, what it represents to the CAC and the and the province, and what what your case for Bill 20, what the case for from your perspective, Nino. What's the case for Bill 21? Well, people have to understand a little bit about about the, the history of Quebec and and where the Quebec Quebec's culture is at. For many years, the Catholic Church was predominant in Quebec, and it took many. It took a lot of years for for Quebecers to to rid themselves of that of that control from the Catholic Church, and uh, with the Revolution Tranquille and everything else that happened historically. I'm not going to give a history lesson, but so where we're at today is that Quebecers do not want religion to be mixed up with government in any way, shape, or form. So Bill 21 does not restrict freedom of religion, by the way. You can practice any religion in Quebec, and they're all welcome, right? What it does restrict is the uh, wearing is the wearing of religious garb when you are in an official government function, including teaching, okay? So when I hear Patrick Brown 
tell us that this is an infringement on religious rights it is not okay when i hear him say that it is uh, racist i i suspect that uh, you know perhaps you should um, I, with all due respect you should perhaps look up the meaning of what racism is uh, and certainly this is not nothing to do with race um, so you know it's just as bad it's just as wrong in quebec right now you can't teach with a large crucifix around your neck either okay so i mean it's not like there is one particular religion that is being targeted okay and then to, for 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 mayor brown to bring in the question of language and all this is totally ridiculous so i understand that somebody who was in politics you know you and i have been in this game of politics long enough to know that one thing a politician can't resist is a national forum so perhaps mr brown is looking at his political future and wants a, a, a political forum uh, I think he's picking one where, you know, perhaps, the, you know, he, he's, he, I hate to say this, but he's probably not ready for prime time. Okay, so um, you said your piece. Let me ask you this then. What is gained by removing this teacher, Fatima Anvari, from the classroom in Chelsea, Quebec? Who, get, who benefits from this, Nino? Well, or is it, just, is it just following the law? Yeah, it is just following the law. I don't think somebody specifically targeted this woman and said, look, we need to take her out. The law says, and I understand there's a challenge in the Supreme Court, and let the courts decide that, but at this point, it is against the law. So for them, for, for a school board to knowingly hire this person, knowing that it is against the law currently, as it stands today, is a mistake on their part and certainly one that put this this teacher in a very bad position they created this problem by by trying to go to circumvent the law or go against it or try or perhaps and i don't want to be cynical here but perhaps to create a situation uh which would help their cause so outside chelsea and i've read stories read news stories that there are protests in chelsea quebec Yes. Uh, parents do not want this teacher removed from the classroom, and they protest against it. Outside of Chelsea, how much of an issue is it in Quebec? Not at all. I, well, I, I think in the current, in all fairness, um, there are there are more pressing issues right now that concern Quebecers and all Canadians, as a matter of fact. So this this has not gotten this has not gotten the media interest that it would maybe it may have had in other times. So now you've uh, got, you've got Trudeau, you've got O'Toole, uh, carefully. Oh, I thank uh, Mr. him, saying by the way. carefully, <laughs> you know, um, they're, they're saying their piece, but Trudeau's not putting the weight of the federal government behind it. And we understand why. Mr. Brown alluded to that. It's, it's, not, it's not safe political capital for them to do that. So let me bring the Quebec Liberal Party and your party, the Party Québécois, into this picture. They are opposing the legislation as well. Why are the Liberals opposing it? Why is the PQ opposing it? Well, the, the Liberals are opposing it. Again, you know, uh, politicians speak for the people who vote for them <laughs> right so if you look at the liberal party in quebec it's become really uh it's not it's not it's no longer the mainstream party it's a party of ethnic groups it's a party of you know very and, and they and this is why they they don't even can't even think of potentially winning the next election they've isolated themselves from mainstream quebec uh as far as dpq is concerned as as a member i can tell you I'm so disappointed. They are so far out to lunch right now. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the separatist cause. I'm talking about the political party uh, under the current leadership is looking for a cause. <laughs> so, you know, this is this is part of the problem. Okay, so so, th so this this case is without doubt going to the Supreme Court one way or another. Sure. Either either the case for the liberals in Quebec or the Parti Québécois or it'll be the case that will be brought forward, uh, you know, by, by Mayor Brown and others across mm -hmm. the country. Right. Uh, if the Supreme Court of Canada rules that uh, or decides that uh, Bill 21 is in fact a violation of the constitutional rights of Canadians and a charter right, what happens then? Is it the notwithstanding clause time? Well, I think, first of all, the notwithstanding clause was put in into the bill already. So it's already there. I think what they will decide is, is this something that, the, that the notwithstanding clause can actually um, cir helps circumvent be with the with the with that clause. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think the the Supreme Court will make a ruling, and either way, 
the, the notwithstanding clause will stand unless the, the, the Supreme Court says that um, you cannot use this, the, the, um, the clause in this particular case, because that's really what they're going to rule on. Okay, so the fundamental rationale for Bill 21, if I understand you correctly, yeah. is that for centuries, the Catholic Church ran the province of Quebec, essentially, mm-hmm. with yes. the political parties doing their bidding. That's the way it was. Yes, so, absolutely. So here, at this time, Quebecers have decided they want nothing to do with that, and it's been in, that's been the, the objective for many years now already. So this Bill 21 just makes, and this, these are, I, I want to understand you correctly, you're saying this defines the secular nature of the province of Quebec. It's got nothing to do with denying the right to religion, or it's got nothing to do with racism. That's the argument that you're making, yes? Absolutely. Okay, in 30 seconds, how is this, uh, what's the opinion in the province of Quebec? I mean, I keep hearing that Quebecers by majority support Bill 21. Is that true? Absolutely. By a large majority. And how's it going to work? How's it going to go over in Quebec that mayors from other parts of the country are challenging Bill 21? Will it be seen as interference or, or people who just want to, who care? Well, first of all, yes, it will be seen as interference. And, and you know, it, it doesn't, I look at this and I say to myself, will, will the rest of Canada ever learn? You know, we're in a position right now where the CAC yeah. is a federalist, par- federalist party, by the way. This is not a separatist government. Understood. Okay. And so and, and instead of, let it, you know, just let the court decide. Okay. Let Quebec go, go do what it what it wants okay. in things that are its own jurisdiction. All right. Well, <laughs> and Aaron O'Toole is right, by the way. We'll talk again, Nino. <laughs> you never thought I'd say that. Professor Nick Bias joins us of the Randall K. Kendrick. He's the uh, Randall K. Kendrick Executive Director of the Global Supply Chain Management Institute at the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. Dr. Bias, thank you very much. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well, Roy. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is such, a, uh, such an incredibly important issue that touches every sector of our lives and uh, each and every one of us. So let me begin with this. Is there a core cause for the multiple sectors of international supply chain disruption? And was there a missed opportunity to head off what we're dealing with now and what we're facing going forward? Uh, That's a pretty complex answer, but to simplify, I would say yes, meaning that the COVID is not the cause of all the issues we're dealing with it. What I call the COVID to be the catalyst to highlight the structural deficiencies of our global supply chain networks that we got used to it over the last 30, 40 years living in it. So we became very comfortable with what we had, perhaps too comfortable, and now we're faced with the reality of this change, and it's affecting each and every one of us each and every day. So how, across how many sectors does the supply chain stretch? So think about this, Roy. Unless you're growing vegetables and you're living off the land, and that's your own land, it's your own backyard, you are exposed to some supply chain within your life period, from food to the necessity, to the utilities, to the communications, to uh, pharmaceuticals. You can imagine every single vertical that touches our lives, there is a supply chain behind the scene executing the moments of goods, services, and information. Mm -hmm. So one question that I see regularly when people send me an email and they, uh, they express their thoughts and their concerns about supply chains, particularly if they've been out trying to buy, uh, say, Christmas presents or uh, just stock up on things they require, they, they say, well, isn't it possible for an individual link of the chain, of the supply chain, to operate on its own? Is, is it truly an interdependent chain, Dr. Vias? Uh, and, and, and if so, where do you begin and how do you begin to relieve the stress? Yeah, so, so let's, let's, I think I can actually see if I can try to answer this question in a little bit more simplistic way. So if we think about what happened over the last 30 years, how did we get here? I think if we ask, ask the question of ourselves, 
how did we get here, right? And then we start to look at the 70s and 80s. What started to happen, especially in the Western democracies, as we started to see the labor cost rising, the influence of the cost factor started to expose our supply chain, we started to export manufacturing and jobs. And while doing so, we found the cheaper ways to source the goods and manufacture those goods. We started to design this long string supply chain that became very one country or one continent centric. And we lost the focus over the last 30 years about the resiliency, agility, and even I would go to say sustainability. Those are the three critical dimensions on top of the cost that all along should have been looked at as a holistic global supply chain so that every link is well thought out with three or four things in mind rather than just a single dimension of, of the cost. And so this is where we as a society got used to it. The whole world got used to consuming cheap goods coming from one continent, one country, in this case, China, so that we just lost sight that, hey, natural disaster, pandemic, geopolitical tension could disrupt our global supply chain network and mm-hmm. put us in the bind that we are living today. Yeah. So are you, and you're one of the world's leading experts on supply chain, are you surprised, you know, the COVID notwithstanding, are you surprised that we're actually living in this reality now with the supply chain as compromised as it is? Would it have been your expectation that survivability of the supply chain would have been more significant than it is? Absolutely. I, I, I believe we had the warning signs all along. I've been writing and speaking about the resilience and agility of supply chains for the last eight years prior to the COVID. And I, I, you know, we had some smoke signal, Roy. We just happened to overlook at those. And the corporations, because of the profit and their focus on the balance sheet uh, and profit and loss statements, they lost sight of it. Government was happy because the economy was growing. So I think all the constituents in this global economy became so comfortable. Nobody wanted to sort of touch this critical issue because it, was, it is a complex issue, by the way, because we've been in it for the last 30 years. Yeah. So nobody wanted to solve this until the COVID actually hit us and reminded us that, listen, you can, simply cannot maintain the status quo. You know, I... Uh... I was watching a documentary on uh, these massive ships that are built, and and their job is simply to move shipping containers, uh, generally from China, to another destination, perhaps it's North America, perhaps it's Europe. But these ships were like cities uh, at at sea. We saw one of them jammed in the Suez Canal a few months ago. Give us a sense of just how massive it is. And I thought, I'm watching this one particular ship, I thought, oh my God, if there's ever a problem, this was before the supply chain really hit us between the eyes. If there's ever a problem with moving this stuff, these containers across the oceans, we are in serious, serious trouble. And I, I read a piece not long ago that suggested that the shipping containers really are sort of they they identify the backbone of the of the supply chain uh, drama yes or no absolutely right so we we actually were last 25 30 years there was a competition who actually owns the biggest vessel so we went from what used to be 10 to 12,000 TU which is about 20 foot containers equivalent to 15,000, 17, 18,000, all the way up to 20,000 plus TEU. So these are like a gigantic floating cities fitting the consumer needs on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And it was just a matter of time that we find ourselves in the situation that we are now sort of re-challenging and rethinking the whole supply chain design to say, how do we really, what I call the triple bottom line supply chain, where we cost is important, but also the agility and resilience is important. And by the way, sustainability is also important because we can no longer consume the way we have over the last three decades or four decades and ignore the other factors because guess what? We have a finite resources 
in, on our planet Earth. And if we don't strike the balance uh, in a way that we manage the cost, resiliency, and sustainability, we have nobody else to blame but ourselves. And we have to pay attention to what's going on because it's hitting us right in our own homes. I mean, I was out looking for something yesterday, and I found one item on the shelf, and it was the last item. And I said to the person who stocks the shelves, by the way, you may want to restock that because I just picked up the last one. And the answer was, that's the last one we have. I said, when's, when's, when's the new stock coming in? Don't know. You don't know. And you won't know how much it's going to cost you. That's true. Right? Again, I think we're, we're dealing with this whole uncertainty created by us. Uh, and, you know, there is an old saying that we all grew up uh, for generations. Says you cannot put all your eggs in the one basket. And guess what? We all did. And now we're paying the price for it. So, the, uh, again, I think if, what I would say, you know, as we reflect on this, if we look at just the horizon scan into the future, right, how do we get out of this? And I think that's where the huge opportunity for human civilization to sort of start to rethink about what I call the decouplings of supply chain without deglobalization. How do we still be part of the global economy, but build our supply chain networks so they're close to home, customer-centric, much more resilient, much more sustainable, because we're going to have to pay attention to our carbon footprint, our natural resources, and mm-hmm. also the cost at the same time. But we don't have to give up one or two things to gain only one thing, which is a cost. So, Dr. Vias, you talk about, you're teasing us with the idea of how do we get out of this? How do, how do we fix this? And so the, you know, the, the rote response is, well, we'll just bring manufacturing back home then. Well, that sounds pretty good, but it's not easy. But is that the approach? How do, how do we get out of this? Yeah, so, so that's a great question, right? So we suddenly, I think the idea tends to be that we want to deglobalize. And we want to bring everything back home and start to build a fence and then actually become completely self-reliant. And answer is somewhere in between. And the way what I call decouplings without deglobalization, meaning but globalization has been a great thing for humanity at large. So how do we continue to participate and practice that? Access the market in Asia for our North American manufacturers and retailers. But at the same time, how do we become resilient and sustainable at the same time? So I think, think about the customer-centric. U.S. is the largest consumer base. And now I combine the Canada and Mexico. Now imagine that being a one node of the customer how do I design my supply chain where my manufacturing close to this node, right? And between U.S., Mexico, Canada, we can create a very self-reliant, short-distance, uh, environmentally somewhat friendly network design. And for at least the key commodities, that pharmaceutical, batteries, uh, food, agriculture, that we become resilient enough so this network is self-sustained. And then you would have the similar cluster for Europe, Africa, Asia. Asia may even have a two cluster because of population. So imagine this independent cluster, mm-hmm. the customer centric, and you were to design the supply chain network, interconnecting them independently as well as interdependently. So if one cluster were to go down, the other substitute cluster would come back up and support that. But uh, so this is what I call the design of the future, a triple bottom line supply chain design that takes into consideration of this level of thoughts and not just simply become this long stream, only cost-driven supply chain network that we've built over the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, now COVID was the disruptor, but it could have been any number of things. As you pointed out, it could have been a, a natural disaster. It could have been any number of things that disrupted the supply chain. I wonder though, are we flexible enough as people um, to, to, to do what you're suggesting, create a shorter supply chain. So if we're talking uh, United States, Canada, and Mexico, for example, uh, are we flexible enough or are we just going to start to see goods reappear and fall back into our pattern? You know, I am, there's a part of me that, that thinks that we as a human species are a little bit intelligent and we'll learn the lessons. But there's the other side of me that thinks that we, if we don't really catch this as a sense of urgency and a burning platform issue, we may actually fall back to uh, status quo attitude and we'll find ourselves back in again. 
either in the geopolitical tension or natural disaster or the future pandemic, right back at where we are today. So I am certainly the optimistic one, hoping that we are uh, intelligent enough to figure this out. And I think the way to do that is what Biden administrations, for example, in the U.S., which is not only spend hard infrastructure, but build soft infrastructure, human capital, but try to focus on smaller decoupling opportunities that are essential for so pharmaceutical, biosciences, uh, electric vehicles, telecommunication. So some of those critical high capital intensive manufacturing, you can start to decouple and bring it close to the customer. But you also have similar customer nodes in Asia, Africa, Europe, and so and so forth. And then slowly but surely, gradually start to win off of this long string into the shorter string supply chains. Yeah, it's uh, it is in the words of um, of somebody who watched me cooking one day, Doctor Bias. It's a mess. It indeed is, but I think. You know, it's a mess, but if we all focus on keeping our kitchen clean and focus on what we want to feed, I think we can produce some amazing dishes for the guests to come. (laughs) That's very good. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 